0: Hello everybody, sorry we're running a bit late today, a bit of a technical problem. So it's a very well, warm welcome firstly to Dawn Riddler, who is a leading independent financial planner in Johannesburg and Dawn's very popular with our attendees because she's not afraid of speaking her mind and she also has very popular articles on the news website. So welcome Dawn. Nice to see you again, Jackie. And then we've got Rupert, who is a um, property tech entrepreneur uh, and Rupert is with Easy Property. So very warm welcome to you today, Rupert.
1: Thank you, Jackie.
0: And then we've got Derek. Derek is um, a retired financial services uh, entrepreneur, and um, he's a regular attendee, and he had a few things that he thought he might want to contribute about how to find a good financial advisor. So welcome, Derek. So let's start with you, Rupert, if you don't mind. You've got this very interesting um, new offering called uh, a kind of fractional property, could you just take us through it briefly? What is it, Um, what are the pros and cons?
1: Sure, so um, I represent a company called Easy Properties. It is a subsidiary of Easy Equities. And essentially, Easy Properties was born out of a request, um, out of the Easy Equities community, which um, I'm sure you'll probably know now, has got north of like two hundred thousand people um, as as clients, um, and there was a, a request out of them to start looking at um additional kind of uh, property investments. Obviously, easy equities um, uh, uh, kind of started with a fractional um, ownership of shares in the company, and this is an extension of that. So. What we do is we've um, obviously identified a lot of pain points in the, in the process around investing in property and have largely tried to deal with those kind of issues by offering um, fractional property investment opportunities um, and kind of democratising that access to property investments to um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who haven't had the opportunity to invest in, in property previously.
0: Sounds very exciting. And I saw in one of your um, notes about the property investment that you have investors who are as young as one years old. How does that work?
1: Yeah, well, obviously those are um, parents who are um, ahead of the game, I guess. And um, yeah, we've we've had 48 investors, um, obviously parents or um, uh, guardians that have opened up accounts for these guys. And we've had 48 people younger than one um, who've invested in our properties.
2: And,
1: and we've had one person who's over 90 who obviously still believes um, in property as an investment. So literally like the full smorgasbord across the, the demographic of age.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. I'm sure we'll come back to that. And for everybody who's joined the webinar, please get your questions into the box. Um, Dawn, let's just recap your approach to investing. You've got this uh, scientific background. Uh, could you just set out how you work? You know, work with your clients?
3: Um, I, I take a holistic um, approach rather, you know, that's why the sort of concept that um, I use really as an analogy to try and explain some of the more difficult concepts around financial planning. I use ecology and, and you know, um, things that people are familiar with, you know, from the bush, from the gardens, you know, maybe from, from what they learn at school, sort of to try and make what is sometimes a dry topic uh, more interesting. So my approach to financial planning is not only independent, It's holistic as well Um, because uh, you know I I want I I don't want my clients to be caught up in a pick me pick me approach which you're inclined to get when you you deal with a number of um, specialists you know each of them think that they've um, got the most important thing that you need and all of them are sort of clamoring around you asking you for your money rather than sort of taking a, a a holistic approach because only everybody's only got a certain amount of money that they want to so even at investment, you know they, it needs to be holistic. So that that is my approach to planning is is that it is holistic. Although that although investment is obviously it's the end goal of everybody and and it is my primary focus because you know we 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 don't do all these other things like take out short term insurance on our house and and that kind of thing you know so that um, we can retire properly. It's just part of the big equation.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Derek. Have you got your sound there?
2: I've got sound. I've got everything.
0: Yes. Thank you. Okay. Excellent. Well, welcome, Derek. So, um, Derek is uh, – he uh, started Umbrella Funds many years ago, and he also started an organisation called the South African Independent Financial Advisor Association. And when Derek and I were chatting earlier this week, Derek said that he had some regrets about the way some things have been done in the financial services sector in the past, and one of the things he's been doing is trying to educate people so that they can ask the right questions. when. Uh, they decide whether they should put their money into the hands of somebody like Dawn or Magnus Haystek or or, or one of the other independent uh, financial advisors out there. Derek, do you want to just briefly take us through some of the key points?
2: Yes, well, thanks very much, uh, Jackie, and uh, Dawn, this is really up your alley as such. Um, uh, The the public have been uh, over the 54.5 years I've been involved in the financial services industry. They've been uh, exposed to uh, a range of products and services that have not been properly explained to them. This has resulted in some horrendous uh, uh, impacts on their financial planning and on their reality check when it comes to. the products that they were sold. Uh, On top of that heap are things called traditional retirement annuities. And Dawn, I'm quite sure you've come across many of those. And uh, a very brief explanation is that uh, the life insurance companies who promote and used to promote this almost largely in the old days, um, the client enters into a contract to pay or 30 or 40 years into this contract but then things come along like uh, corona and all of a sudden they can't work and they've got to give up work and then they've got to give up the contributions they are paying towards these horrendous retirement annuities that's when the problem starts because the insurance companies have costed all the profitability and the infrastructural cost way up front so you might have a statement uh, a few months ago from your retirement annuity provider which says that you have uh, a million rand in your account but if you stop paying 10 years beforehand that million is going to reduce by a hundred thousand rand or two hundred thousand rand now that's uh, that's unacceptable but that unfortunately is the reality of the industry uh, in south africa and so to try and uh, balance this out my association safer south african independent financial advisory association we started to work on a set of questions and those questions would empower the public to do a form of due diligence on their current or to be appointed financial advisor and some of those questions will lead to the uh, outcome of the advice, guidance and service that they get and will hopefully better educate the public to ask some of the right questions so that they don't get caught again.
0: And what are some of those questions? What are your top five questions?
2: Well, uh, let's let us uh, say that we represent the independent financial advisor. So we like to know. We like, we believe the public should like to know that uh, who they're dealing with. So one of the questions uh, is uh, who is your employer? For instance, if you were a dawn Redler, you'd be able to say, "I'm self-employed. I'm an independent financial advisor." i not employed by a major life insurance company or product provider. So the, the first differential is to find out the difference between uh, a product supplier agent, PSA, or an IRFA, Independent Financial Advisor, IFA. So, so, so the, it's an important uh, question to ask and get that well-defined in the public and client's mind. Then the next question that uh, uh, appears uh, uh, on the set of 21, uh, due diligence so We might question. not
0: get to all 21 right now, but. No,
2: no, no, I was, was going to go for the second one. but if, if, if the first one was good enough, we'll stay there for a moment.
0: Okay, well, we actually got the first question coming in, and it's for Rupert, and this is from Denise. She says, what do you actually own when you invest in fractional property?
1: Well, you actually own the, the physical asset itself. Um, you know, we obviously go out and we, we um, buy these properties subject to um, raising the capital. Um, we raise the capital through an IPO process and the, the physical properties themselves are, are the underlying asset.
0: Thank you. And then Dawn, while we're looking at this, have you looked yeah. at fractional property at all? What do you do? You ever sort of point your clients in the direction of properties?
3: Um, you know, I, I think um, Rupert probably agree with me. Um, property has gone through and is probably still going through a bit of a tumultuous phase right now um, with with COVID. And um, I think we are still going to see fallout um, in property. I mean, if you look at, for example, the the graph of REITs, um, even over the last, you know, even since over the last seven years or whatever, they've just gradually come off, you know, come off substantially, in fact. So, I mean, property has to be part of a diversified portfolio. Absolutely, it's got to be part of a diversified portfolio. Um, but within that diversification, say, for example, you know, your your View for the client who is um, maybe in a growth portfolio because it's pre-retirement, you say, listen, we want right now Um, 20% in property, for example, Um, you know, something like fractured property might form part of that 20%. But, you know, I think one of the key factors right now, right in in all investment is diversify, diversify, diversify. Um, And you just cannot afford to I mean, if you've got a huge amount of money and if, if you can put, say, you know, it, it, in, in an asset class, maybe you want diversification of, say, six different um, assets within that asset class and then fractured property. So, we, I, you know, um, I haven't been using it at, at the moment. I'm a bit, uh, I'm watching property at the moment. Um, you know, I still think, you know, with um, basically, uh, evictions being um there's a moratorium on evictions when that runs out and we start to see the true impact on on landlords the true impact of uh, work at home um on on properties and rents and this kind of thing Uh, personally you know sorry Rupert I I think you know there's a little bit of problem look it's probably there's a time coming soon and you don't want to you know, sort of time the bottom of the market. I think it is somewhere, probably near the bottom of the market, um, and and it could go up. But um, you know, I think uh, you know it's it's diversification and property isn't forming a huge part of any of my clients' portfolios right now. But that is starting to change.
1: I think. Thank what's you, Dawn. Would you like
0: to respond, uh, Rupert? Sorry, there's a bit you know, of a time
1: uh, Yeah, I think what I, what is interesting is is as Dawn says um, in these reits, I, I think these reits have taken a bit of a battering over the time of COVID, and we'll still get to see how this all washes out um, from a commercial point of view and the work from home and all of that. Um, without a doubt, I think um, what's key for us at Easy Properties, obviously, is diversification. Um, and again, you know, it's interesting. Dawn mentioned the fact that you know, if you've got buckets of money, you, you can ride out certain sectors um, performing a little bit worse than you know some of your other investments, I think that 's largely one of the the major pain points that people have had when it comes to investing in property um, you know is not having buckets of money or access to finance or anything like that and I think that 's one of the things that we 've tried to offer is is diversification and obviously no minimum so i mean we 've been going for about three and a half months we 've we've um provided investments into about fifty five different um individual residential um apartments um our our funds at the moment are only residential um thankfully i, I wouldn't really want to be um, invested in kind of commercial property at the moment but yeah i mean we, we know this, the state of the, the property market obviously people are under pressure um but what we have found is that we you know we've had like over nine thousand one hundred people investing in our properties um there's no minimum so um, you know you can put one rand in if you want but people have got the opportunity to um, diversify across 55 at the moment um separate units for as little as one rand and that obviously mitigates um, some of the risk in terms of um, non-paying tenants or, or things like that so yeah it, it's certainly going to be interesting to see and um, we remain um, in hope to see what kind of washes out post this this COVID period but Yeah, I'd far rather be in residential property at the moment than any retail or or commercial stuff.
0: Thank you. There's a follow-up question from Dawn's point about she hasn't had her clients in property much lately. And this is from Aisha. And Aisha says, would you advise private individuals to invest in residential South African property now, or would you wait a bit longer to maybe next year? Dawn, would you want to pick up on that one first?
3: Um. You know, when it comes to residential property, I I still think there's fallout. And I'm seeing fallout among my clients who've got residential property portfolios. Um, You know, people who've built up residential property portfolios over decades um, as their pension. And they have been very badly impacted over this COVID period. Um, And, you know, this is happening all over the world. And it's even more exacerbated in places like the states and that kind of thing. And that money that is lost, that rental income that is lost, um, you're never going to get it back as a landlord, you know. Um, and so even even residential property, look, if, if you want to sort of look at it holistically in, in the broader sense of the world, if you've got a, your own house and a bond, you're already invested in residential property to a certain extent, right? So that really needs to be factored into your portfolio in terms of how much weighting um, you 've got in residential residential property if though you 're sort of younger and you say maybe building up a um, you know a deposit and that kind of thing and you want to align part of your portfolio um, with the way that retail rental prop you know, sorry residential property is going um, th- then it's probably a, a a better idea but you know um I, you know I think read between the lines it's like you know I'm you know for the next couple of months you know I think really up until end of next year I still think even in the residential property there's going to be fallout you know companies are retrenching people left right and center quietly they're um, you know putting people out on early retirement there's voluntary redundancies and you know these aren't all hitting the paper they're just sort of quietly quietly happening and we're going to wake up and there's we find you know that you know our unemployment rate is actually not you know forty five percent or whatever it is actually far higher.
0: That's a very interesting point you make. We have a an article on our website at the moment by Duane of recession alert and he estimates that at least 20 to 25% of all jobs that were, were sort of lost or put on hold in the pandemic will we'll never see those again. So that is quite scary. Rupert would you like to just pick up on Dawn's point about is it now, is now a good time to invest in property, or should we wait a bit longer?
1: Well, again, you know, the residential property. I think um, look, a lot of what Dawn's saying is obviously valid. Um, I, I'm certainly not here representing easy properties, fiddling while Rome is burning. Um, we, I think, we know what the um, the reality of the of the uh, markets are like. Again. Um, the one's obviously got to break residential property down into price bands and geographic locations and all of that stuff you know if um i wouldn't be looking to buy a 20 million rand house in in sandhurst looking to rent that out obviously you're going to get like a really poor yield so i think key like like anyone who's looking to invest in the stock market or anything you, you've got to do your research there are areas that are obviously growing um much better than other areas. Um, that's just the reality of it. I mean, um, I think of Mpumalanga and KZN, I think the growth figures have come back at like um, 5%, which is obviously better than some of the other areas. Um, and in certain kind of price segmentation, um, the the yields that are being achieved are, um, are pretty good. You know, it's, it's about understanding the market and understanding the risks, um, yeah, you know, it's it's pretty much as simple as that. Uh, I think, you know, in um, lower price, um, sectional title kind of apartments, I feel a lot more comfortable um, renting in than um, really upmarket stuff in, in Melrose Arts from a buy to let point of view. But again, um, underscoring that issue it is about diversification. You know, if 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 I had one investment unit, I'd be feeling quite nervous. You know, you've got all your eggs in one basket um, with one tenant. Um, if they are one of these unfortunate people that um, are experiencing um, redundancies or retrenchments, you know, then you've got an inherent risk. The the fact that um, through our platform you are able to invest in multiple units, it, it obviously reduces that.
2: Um,
1: you know but it, it's like anything any kind of investment it, it takes a lot of research you you need to be sure where you're investing i think that's also one of the the benefits of um, investing in through our platform if anyone wants to have a look at it you can choose specific um residential um apartments to invest in you know if you're investing in a reit there's obviously like very complicated management structures and a big managed fund and it, it's sometimes quite difficult to see right through to what those um, actual properties are um but yeah like as i say, like any investment for for want of um repeating myself you know you you um, must do your research
0: thank you noreen has a question to the panel she says is life insurance a must when you buy property and have a bond And do you have to take that life insurance with the bank who financed you? Derek, I don't know if that's one that's for you, that you might like to take that one.
2: Yes, well, uh, obviously, any liability that you engage with, you need to make sure that your family and your estate is properly covered. And therefore, purchase of life insurance becomes very important. That, by the way, opens another whole can of worms in that uh, one of the things that we'll be focusing on going forward is do you buy a traditional life assurance product with, again, high upfront fees and commissions or do you buy an as and when fee uh, structure? And uh, on on the recent uh, uh, figures that I was given on a 23 million Rand life assurance policy, Uh, the premium difference is uh, 10,700 rand a month versus 7,300 rand a month, if I remember the figures correctly, and uh, between one and the other. And so there's a lot of work to be done, and we at Safer will certainly take up that particular challenge on behalf of the public and on behalf of our Safer members.
0: Thanks, Dawn. What is your view? Is it a, is it compulsory to take life insurance when you buy property? Um, no, only if it's under five hundred thousand rand,
3: um, then uh, then the bank can insist on it. Um, sometimes, if you're high risk, the bank will say either you take it out or we don't. But my um, I've looked at I look at costings all the time, and I have also looked at um, as and when premiums and and that kind of thing, and I have my own view on it. But um, the I. In in my experience, uh, call center life in, life insurance and bank life insurance is 30% more expensive than what you can get from traditional life in, insurer. But um, one of the things that I think um, you know to add to what Derek was saying is that not only um, should you be looking at as and when, but when it particularly when it comes to bonds, you're looking at a decreasing um, capital amount that needs to be covered because you're paying the bond off. And so, say the term is twenty years, um, that you can usually bring the premium down substantially by taking out cover that is termed. In other words, it's just for just for those twenty years, and on a decreasing balance. Um, you know, so that it just pays out. You know, what what you needed, and especially if you're um, uh, you know uh, taking it out specifically for a bond or something. I recommend that you do that. You take it out specifically for that bond, for the amount of that bond, on a decreasing. And if, if the bank wants you to cede it to them, so that you know they take the first bite of the, you know, so that their bond is covered, then you can do that. But um, I don't recommend that people take their existing life cover um, and seed cede that to a bank. It, you know, I've I've been involved in winding up estates, and that always causes delays and nightmares and cash flow problems and Goodness knows what else. So, rather, if 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 you if the bank insists on doing it, um, and seeding it, then take out a separate policy for that. But shop around, seriously shop around.
0: Dawn, the other uh, issue is like as we to get to older. Oh, sorry, Rupert, I'll be with in a minute. I just want to follow up with Dawn. As we get older, we start getting ill. We it becomes harder to get life assurance. Is there yes. a case for maybe just taking insurance as early as possible and then just biting the bullet? You know, I um. Uh, you know, having
3: life insurance, you know, and, unless you're sort of 20 and no intern, you know, or not married and no children and that kind of thing, it's quite difficult to sort of say, look, you're going to buy a house one day and that kind of thing. But more and more of most of my clients' children are in their 20s. They're not married or anything like that, but they're already buying houses and so you know that it's the first time that they actually have a liability so that's already happening that you're getting the the you know the life insurance being taken out at a younger age but certainly taking out uh, you know keeping a life insurance policy so if you've got a little you know maybe one or 2 million rand um life policy your house is now paid off it it probably is worthwhile keeping it ticking over now bear in mind that covid itself is probably going to add um, an element of un- uninsurability to anybody who contracts it. Um, I haven't started to see it in any underwriting that I've been involved with, but you know, th- as soon as you start hearing about long-term effects to the heart or the lungs or the kidneys or even the brain, um, you you know that 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 question, did you you know have you contracted COVID, and please can we take an antibody test, is
0: is coming down the pipe. Derek, you agree with Dawn that that's going to make it harder to get insurance?
2: Absolutely. Uh, And again, uh, I must revert to the principle that the public should use properly designated and professional, preferably independent financial advisors who are able to give a broad spectrum of comparisons when whatever product is needed or whatever service or an investment strategy is needed. So Dawn is 100% correct. And if you go to a product supplier agent, they will tend to be restricted to the products of their employer. So going to an independent for a proper analysis of the need and then a proper research into the marketplace, Dawn makes a lot of sense to me.
0: It was very interesting to hear Dawn saying that it's actually more expensive to go for the, for the life insurance that looks cheaper, the one you buy through your bank and so on. So that's also worth looking at. Rupert, let's pick up with you on life insurance. Do your clients need life insurance?
1: No, not at all. Um, but I, I think there's an important distinction to be made between life insurance and, and um, homeowner's insurance. You know, if if you do take a bond out with a bank, the the bank generally does require you to take um, insurance over the the structure of the property, the assets, certainly the amount that they are um, loaning to you. Um, and so that, while the life insurance may or may not be um, a requirement, and sometimes it is if there are some affordability uh, concerns, but certainly the the homeowner's cover you will need to take. And I yeah. um, just want to kind of echo what um, Derek and Dawn have said is absolutely it's important to shop around. You, um, you know, between the banks and the providers, uh, there, there's often a, a variety of, of um, different products out there. But from our point of view, um, our investors obviously don't need to take out that insurance. We um, buy the properties through SPV, um, we, we do a 30% loan to value, so it's largely cash driven. But we are taking out mortgages on the 30% and um, there is obviously a requirement for insurance to ensure that, that portion of, of the assets.
0: Can you just explain what an SPV is? SPV is for people who are not familiar with that?
1: It's basically a shelf company. Um, you know, we'll, we'll set up a shelf company in which um, we will facilitate the purchase of these properties and we raise capital by um, offering up shares in those um, shelf companies so that that kind of happens through um, an ipo process so we raise the funds to to purchase the property
0: thank you another question for the panel from d she says rupert touched on young investors as young as one already investing can the panel briefly talk us through how parents can start investing for their young children and can this be done before they are born dawn do you get this coming up often or not really
3: No, not really. Um, You know, it used to be very fashionable to take out an endowment for your kids on these traditional life life things. They're they're abysmal, quite frankly. Um, You know, uh, something along the lines of what Rupert said, look, that we're talking, when we're talking about what what Rupert's um, offering is, that's a very long-term investment. Um, And even if you're wanting to put, say, money away for a child's education, that is at least 18 years. Um, and and so it's really not the worst idea in the world, quite frankly, to you know buy shares in 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 something like that that property. You know, property, although you know, goes through its cycles and that kind of thing. It usually tends on on going keep keep going up purely because you know inflation is just making it more and more
2: expensive to build them. At the end of the day.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Derek, do you have anything to add to that?
2: No, no, no? other no, other other than. The I have a question for Rupert. Rupert, um, should an independent financial advisor wish to recommend your uh, investment uh, services and structures, uh, how would they go about conducting a due diligence on your company?
1: So each of the the companies, because it's a public company, the shelf company, you know, there's, we obviously have to get audited financial figures, So um, you know, it's, it's the normal kind of due diligence um, stuff applies. We obviously also regulated by the financial services board. So we, we highly regulated, and we have all of that information um,
2: available. Thank you. Uh, J- but Jackie, just by the way, question number 14 of the 21 goes, uh, do you conduct any form? Of due diligence on the products, services, and companies that you recommend, uh, to what degree and how often? So that's that's very important. Uh, so when you appoint a independent financial advisor, it should be one of the questions you ask them.
0: And they I might answer correctly, to, but how do you know if that? they're actually doing it? Sorry, Rupert, continue
2: sorry jackie i think
1: also just in addition to that obviously because um the the capital is raised through an ipo process there's obviously a very detailed prospectus that is available to all investors to look at in the first place um it's got all assumptions that have been made around the the choice of properties um the rentability the suitability um cash flow forecasts all of those stuff obviously all of those are um Illustrative kind of things because you know they um, you know they're not up and running as yet though some are already rented out um, you know I think quite a it's quite a um, big thing that we try and look for is properties that are already fully tenanted it makes a difference but obviously um, that's to start with during the course of the investment there will be all of these audited um, financials as well as part of that due diligence.
3: Um, I, I just want to make a. Uh, Just a a point here on on due diligence Um, is that, you know, just because it's a, you know, big company, you know, the the big, the the Coronation's Island Grays, Investex and and this kind of thing, um, where you can assume that, you know, due diligence has been done. But, I mean, you just have to look at the scenario when African Bank went belly up, Right. The um, clients in the you had money market unit trusts. You think a money market unit trust safer houses, safer than houses? Um, you know my capital safe and that kind of thing. And obviously it wasn't because it, it doesn't have the same protection as if you had deposited it in the bank. And these big companies were using the you know African banks and VBSs and this kind of thing because they were offering high interest rates than everybody else. You know they call it sweeteners right? With, and, but doesn't look so sweet when it goes south. So, um, you know, I mean, th- there's a limit, to, particularly when it comes to, to to an IFA, about how much due diligence, um, you know, you can do. Um, you know, you, you I find that a lot of brokers or financial advisors or whatever you want will default to the very popular ones because they know they're not going to get into trouble if they do that. And uh, you know, and, and the thing is as an IFA, even if if you like for example, you know, I I'm accredited with a lot of the, the life insurance companies and um just keeping up with the accreditation and the new products and new benefits and everything else just on those life companies, uh is you know, it's it, it takes a huge amount of time. And then you've got to do it with all the investment companies as well. It's you know, easier said Thank than done.
0: And I suppose you can always get ripped off by people like cor- big corporates who hide financial details like the Steinhoff scandal showed us. And in fact, I think African Bank too. Yeah.
2: yeah. And Dad that, and that mentioned Chemex, but Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So quite yeah. a few questions coming in for Rupert here on the offshore aspects of investing. And Mervin and Linda want to know do you have any properties that have an offshore flavor or are offshore for
1: investment? Jackie, we don't at the moment. Um, We obviously, we're looking at different um, scenarios. We're looking at some um, of those medical properties in the States. We're looking at some um, properties in the in the UK. But at the moment, we are um, keeping things simple. Um, It hasn't been requested by our our base yet. But obviously, I think it's one of the founding tenants that, that we have is to be able to offer um a broad range of property investments that are usually only available to the well-heeled um through this kind of crowd-sourced way i, I think of some of the the u.s property investments from this side i think they're minimums of like 50,000 rand um, certainly in some of them um, and while they're great investments and offer some really good returns um you know that excludes a large portion of these people of the people that invest with us so yes we we are looking at all of those things and we will make available the full kind of range of, of property investment but um it's not on our platform at the moment
3: yeah um, Rupert, i'm i'm sure you agree with me i mean one of the sort of things that a client needs to take into consideration when they're investing in any type of property and i mean you know these offshore um guys you know everybody's out there looking for everybody's buck, right to invest um is is the liquidity that it, you know, of that investment, right? Um, so, you know, are you tied up for five years or can you sell it tomorrow if you wanted to? Um, is there a market for it, so, you know? And, you know, that's the sort of issue that is is, is skirted over. And also then to, um, you know, compare the, you know, the returns and the internal rates of return, to actually know what an internal rate of return is. Um, and say, so, right, your internal rate of return is 8%, but what can I get out there in a, a liquid, non-fixed environment? How different is it?
1: Yeah, and that's such a key point. You know, um, uh, I, I think it was Derek earlier uh, mentioned about the long-term nature of, of property investment. And and obviously, li- liquidity being a, a major thing, you know, um, one shouldn't invest with, um, certainly in a, in a property space with money that you're gonna need for, uh, school fees or whatever it might be next month. I mean, you know, that is, that is a given. I think what, what we've tried to do with Easy Properties um, is we understand that liquidity is is an issue. Our investment terms are between five and seven years. But people, you know, things happen in life. And so you need access to your investments. So one of the things that we've done is we um, have built a, a an auction um, capability, like what happens, you know, at the end of a a day on the JC it goes into um, an auction, and we've built a, a similar kind of environment um, where guys can at least at least once a quarter during that investment period um, either look to invest more should they wish, or um, offer up their shares in these properties um, should they wish to liquidate some of those investments. Um, obviously it, it depends on a, um, a, a, a secondary market and, and what the kind of demand is. But um, I think that's gonna go a long way to assist with those liquidity issues in the, in the property space.
3: Yeah, you know, um, Rupert, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, putting money there that you're not gonna need for, for five or, t- or 10 years. Um, because, um, you know, if, if, if you are, you know, might get retrenched, might get made redundant, might need access to those funds, um, it's it's not like you can just go onto the stock stock market, click a button, and it, it's sold, and the money's in your account the next day. You know that 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 sort of disclosure and discussion needs to happen um, with your financial advisor. You know, I mean, I have exactly the same. Conversation with clients that say, "Listen, I want to put money overseas, or I need to put money overseas," and we say to them, "Hey, let's just take a step back. This needs to be excess money because you can't keep, you know, uh, put money back and forth between here and overseas every time you need, you know, um, a couple of extra bucks to throw at your bond or something like that." So, um, yeah, it, you know, all of this kind of advice and and putting property of any description into your investment portfolio needs to be, uh, you know, done in a measured way with your um, with your financial advisor.
0: Thank you. Hans wants to drill down a bit more into the ownership details with Rupert. He says, when an apartment block is bought, will this one block be put into one company? Therefore, when you buy shares in the property company, you only hold shares in that one block and not shares in several blocks. Could you just elaborate there? I think we might have lost Rupert.
2: Yeah, I think you have, yeah. Uh, We'll move on
0: to a question from, oh, sorry, Derek, you had something to add there.
2: Yeah, sure. It's, you know, I can only uh, further endorse what Dawn is saying because at the end of the day, uh, it, it, the whole process starts with the appointment of a financial advisor. And that selection will lead you to the public, to all the aspects that Dawn has so well set up today and aspects that roger uh, rupert has brought up you know, so at the end of the day if you if you uh, do your homework and you do your due diligence on your proposed and or existing financial advisor you will actually walk away with a whole lot of stuff uh, and knowledge that you didn't have before and it's that didn't have before that's going to be so important one of the things that i'm sure dawn has in place is an easy to understand service level agreement between herself and each of her clients and their families. And uh, that service level agreement hinges completely on all the points that we've covered today, plus a whole bunch of others that we've tried to identify via uh, our 21 questions.
0: Thank you, Rupert, we've got you back. Um, I don't know if you heard that question. Somebody wanted to understand exactly the ownership structure, and then there's also a second question that you could perhaps answer as well about if somebody wants to sell early, is there a, an early termination penalty? Perhaps you could just briefly take us through that.
1: Yeah, so um, what we've decided to do just for ease of management um, is, is to have each shelf company own units in the, in the same uh, block. So as an example, we've just closed an IPO now in the Blyde out in Pretoria. We've got 10 units there and we've set up a specific shelf company for that. It helps with um, the the kind of running of the the management company, um, tenanting those units, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And so it's it's kind of homogeneously done um, in each property that, you know, that it's owned by a specific SPV, if that answers the question. Um, and sorry, what was the second uh, part
0: about uh, if, early termination? Oh, been-
1: so yeah, so I mean, the the, the selling out. If, if one wants to get out of those properties, it, it is going to be done through this um, secondary auction market that we are um, are creating. That that's the way that people can get out of those shares.
0: OK, thank you. Dawn, here's a question from Helena who wants to know she's been hanging on to an investment for what feels like forever. She says it's a value fund and she's been waiting for it to perform. When should she get out? At what <laughs> point do you decide to exit? Uh,
3: yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I hate to tell it, but, you know, value investing went out of favour a good 10, 15 years ago. You know, um, the stock market. Anyway, has been incredibly challenging, um, you know. And I, I think was it uh, John Rickard or whatever he used to be the sort of uh, the the god of uh, value investing.
0: Pete Lyon.
3: Pete Yeah. You know, you. You. Yeah, I, you know the, it's a really, really tough market, and I, I, I don't see any light on the horizon with with value funds just yet. It's it's a difficult market at the best of times. Without trying to find. Um, that you know the thing is that there's there's true value and there's value that is that is just technical technical value means it's got a low pe it and it'll go up um but if you actually don't do some proper analysis into that it might be a very good reason it has a low pe is because it's actually not very good right um you know so, so you can't just you can't just buy it on 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 low pe so um and and there are value funds out there who, who who try to do it on a sort of technical basis, which quite frankly is just lazy um you know just just buy cheap and hope that it get gets better you know sometimes you buy cheap and what well, it it does move but it yeah goes out of existence
2: basically.
0: Derek, would you like to add to that? It sounded like you had a lot of thoughts on value funds and when to leave a fund
2: no no not not on value funds but uh but uh i i, I couldn't can't this this uh, miss the, the 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 story because uh, we were talking about early termination costs so question number 13 is uh, what are uh, the all-in costs which uh, uh, i'm sure that someone like dawn would ask uh, rupert on behalf of her clients and that said uh, what are the all-in costs of products and services recommended by you uh, uh, and uh, please set out your advisory commission fees all product provider, service provider, layers of cost. And this is the, but, and what are all early termination costs? And as Rupert has correctly said, uh, he can't define right now what the early termination cost would be. Uh, and, uh, and it's one of the important questions that I believe a proficient financial advisor independent Uh, would be very wary about and say, look, you know, if you're going to invest money wherever, whether it's in Rupert's uh, uh, range of services and products or whether it is traditional retirement annuity or endowment policy or whatever, that question must be asked. What are the early termination costs? Uh, We can't tell you right now, but this is the process that will be followed for you to access your money should you be forced to cash in early or try and cash in early. Yeah. Dawn, I don't know, would you agree with me? Uh,
3: absolutely. And, and um, you know, one of the sort of, I suppose, challenges particularly when, uh, you know, it's fairly you and you're growing and that kind of thing is that um, the assumption is that there's going to be a willing buyer at a reasonable price. You know, what if you go to that auction and nobody wants to buy it, then what? you know, then potentially, I'm not saying that it will, Rupert, you know, I'm not saying that it will, but potentially the early termination penalty could be 100%, right? Um,
1: well, no, I, I think we need to distinguish between a, an early termination fee, which we aren't charging, and um, a know, lack of liquidity because there's a second market.
3: Yeah, that, that but it's a penalty, yeah. what, you know, you can call it what you like. You know, it's, it's, as I'm inclined to say, you know, Rose by any other name has just as many thorns, right? Um, but, you know, that that is the issue that I have with quite a few of the sort of property, you know, structures and that that are out there, local and, and offshore, is this a bit of a gray area, which from a financial advisory perspective, um, you know, it, it starts to smack speculation rather than than proper advice. Maybe I'm a bit too old school in that, but I'd, I'd make no apologies for being
1: a bit old school.
0: Yeah. Rupert, would you like to follow up on that?
1: Yeah, I think this is... Um, I don't think that what we're offering here is is speculative from that point of view. You know, I think if if anyone had to have a look at our um, documentation that is online, that is available from the
2: prospectus, we I are just, um, so very, sure. very clear I, on... Hi, um, everybody. Visit. This is my wife who's having a party for her birthday party to all her friends outside here. So, well, we'll let so you go and, to
0: a party. Happy birthday.
2: Okay, thank you're you right, There you. was a knocking my the door here. Hopefully, that's um,
1: some cold wine as well being delivered for all of the participants.
2: Yes, so, we're lovely. about to wrap thank up, you.
0: so thank you very much for joining thank us. You. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think just in closing, Jackie, um, from on, on that point, you know, we are we make a, a point of being very transparent about all the um, costs, the ancillary costs. It, it it forms a huge part of the prospectus. It's very readily seen and available on our um, platform. There are are zero hidden costs. But like anything, any kind of investment, um, you know, one's always got to look at what the what the exit is going to be at the end of the investment. You know, that's not specific to property that's specific to all sorts of investments. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people around that have bought shares at certain values that have gone through the floor. Um, one only has to look at all the stuff that happened um, with Sasol recently. There were guys that I'm sure that are trying to time the market and took a bath. Um, you know, that, that's true of every single investment. That's not um, specific to property.
0: Yeah. Thank you. We've got time for one more question. Um, and uh, Rudolf says that there's lots of talk about long-term investing, but keep in mind elderly people might not have a long-term to work with. So perhaps I could ask each of you for your best tip on what you should be doing now if you are elderly and you want to enjoy your life, as Derek clearly seems to be enjoying things. Where's the best place to put your money to get a big return soon? Derek, where would you be investing now to make a bit of extra money so that, so, that you could go on a cruise or something in a year's time?
2: <laughs> <The> cruising zone.
0: <laughs> yeah. The Maybe cruise, not a cruise Yeah. yeah. Dawn, mm-hmm. what are, what, are,
3: what are your
0: thoughts on what are your thoughts on should people be investing in stocks or how, how could they just add a bit of a turbo charge to their long term savings? Right now, Jackie
3: they can't um you know if i had an answer to that question you know i'd be i wouldn't be on a cruise but i'd be sitting on a beach somewhere um and i might still do that anyway but um you know really you have to more than anything else protect what you've got right now um don't try and be clever you know don't don't try and shoot the lights out or anything else make sure that what you've got can sustain you for the rest of your life and unfortunately that might mean actually sort of downsizing, pulling in your belt a little bit, all those kind of horrible things that you don't want to hear. But I think that is what is is more important right now.
0: Thank you. And Rupert, is your investment opportunity for elderly people, would you say?
1: Look, this is this is not um a roulette wheel where you're gonna invest um five thousand Rand and, and earn millions that you're able to retire comfortably. Um mm. I think that, you know, the biggest thing is when, when people are at um, retirement age and they find that they don't have enough money for retirement, you've got two choices, I guess. One is, as Dawn said, you, you've got to cut your cloth accordingly or you need to take substantially more risk in what you have. And um, those are two sides of the coin. Um, obviously, the like everything, the answer is generally down the middle, but... Um, yeah, in these uncertain times, uh, you know, uh, probably cutting your cloth accordingly is is the better option. One doesn't want to take a risk with um, your retirement stuff right at the point of retirement. But uh, those are the choices that are essentially available to you: is increase your risk or, or downscale your expenses, or you can always have a look at the purple share price, which has been doing quite well over the last little while.
0: Okay, and Derek, any last thoughts from you before we close yeah, off
2: today? Two two last thoughts. One is question number twenty-one is uh, <laughs> we got there when 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 you ask when you ask no, when you ask your financial advisor is my money your client or am I your client? That, that sets the scene, and one of the things that we've done is we've launched a uh, a program called CPR. Certified Post-Retirement Practitioner Program. And Dawn, this is something that you might be very interested in, where we focus not on money at all. We look at the psychology of aging, relationships pre- and post-retirement. We look so you at...
3: Need, need, I need more qualifications eh, Derek.
2: Hmm? Okay. <laughs> uh, powers of attorney uh, and uh, and, the, and the terrifying impact of various forms of dementia on powers of attorney. And then we look at things called retirement accommodation, the different options, and we look at things like uh, uh, like um, uh, cost of frail care. And that becomes the new norm, as far as we're concerned, for all financial advisors. If you are not reasonably knowledgeable on those four subjects, you're only sticking to money and money's not the end game. Uh, Rupert, as you correctly alluded to. At the end of the day, people retiring in the future might live 35, 40 years. Then if you factor in their spouses, absolutely. So those those become important aspects to us at Safer. Thank
0: you. Well, thank you very much. Greg says to all three of you thank you very much you guys were very interesting so thank you very much to yes. first of all to dawn who's one of our regular panelists uh, here at our business finance friday webinar thank you very much dawn from Karenga. and if you want to contact her uh, she's got a practice in johannesburg and then we've also got uh, rupert finnamore who is the ceo of easy properties thank you very much rupert for joining us and explaining great. this uh, mm-hmm. interesting possibility for people uh, mm-hmm. And then, of course, we've got Derek as well, Derek Smorenborg, a retired uh, financial services entrepreneur who is uh, steeped in advice issues and, as you heard today, gave us a lot of tips on the kinds of questions we can ask. So, thank you very much and thanks to everybody for joining us and giving us Thank you.
2: questions. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Jackie, and thanks
0: to Stuart.